God has rescued us from dead-end alleys and dark dungeons. He set us up in the kingdom of the Son he loves so much. The Son who got us out of the pit we were in, got rid of the sins we were doomed to keep repeating. We look at this Son and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this Son and see God's original purpose in everything created. Look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from His perspective. You received Christ Jesus, the Master. Now live Him. You're deeply rooted in Him. Father God, we come before you today as a group of people that are grateful for your blessing, grateful for your kindness towards us. We got up today in a typical normal Sunday morning and getting ourselves ready and getting us here in this community, and we're grateful for that. But God, we lift up the community uh, in Pittsburgh today with the challenges uh, that came after yesterday's shooting in the synagogue. God, for all those affected, for the families of those who were whose lives were taken, to those, God, who are injured, to those who were a part of a life-changing experience, God, that is just so tragic and so um, absolutely gripped with fear. We are grateful that you are a God, a God who is well beyond any of our fears, a God who's well beyond any tragedy. My prayer would be today that those in the Pittsburgh community who love you, God, would you use them to be a source of your love? Would you use them to be your hands and your feet? to this community that has suffered such a great loss? And would they be a people, God, who just like we just sang, would they be led by your love to those in their lives? God, would you use them in powerful ways? We pray for your healing over that community. We pray for your grace to abound in the midst of something that is obviously um, from the evil one. And so we pray today that that group of people today would love you, would know you, and would see you even in the midst of this challenging time. We love you and we thank you for this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are grateful you're here with us today. My name is Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity Church. I want to welcome you. You are joining us on the last week of our series in the book of Colossians called Rooted. And uh, it's just been to me such a great series because the book of Colossians is so gospel-centric. We just see Jesus so much about the center of the universe and ought to be then the center of our lives. And so I'm grateful that if you've been able to be here with us through the series, if you're a guest today, I want to welcome you. And I think even as we talk today on this final portion of this book, it's going to be encouraging and uh, something that's going to stimulate you as well. That's at least been my prayer this week. Uh, if you look in your Trinity this week, you have notes that look like these. If you want to get those out, and uh, not only will that help you kind of track with us better today, but also you'll notice the second half are notes for your home group. So just be mindful of those as you get together this week and discuss together as a group. Um, I want to say this because I know I'll forget if I don't say it later. We um, kind of failed to put anywhere in your Trinity this week the fact that you get to sleep in an hour next week. And so I know even the fact that I'm saying this right now, I know many of you will forget. You will come in the end of this previous service and you'll go, what's happening? They started without me. And we'll go, no, we didn't. We're just an hour ahead of you so or behind you. So be thoughtful. Sleep in next weekend. The 4th of November is when our clocks fall back. 
and uh, join us on time, and that'll be great. If you get here early because you did forget, we'll just encourage you to go get a cup of coffee and come back, so it'll be all good, all right? Um, what we're doing today, as we wrap up this book, what we're looking at is we are looking at uh, Paul laying out a letter to a group of people he's never met. These people have come to faith through one of his associates, his friend Epaphras. Epaphras just went back to his people. Epaphras was originally from Colossae, had met Paul most likely somewhere in Ephesus, and as a result came to faith, went back and brought this great news to his people, those that he had done life with, those he wanted to share this great news of Jesus, and now Paul is writing to them. And what we've seen in the first half of the book, we've seen this reality of Paul uh, talking about the greatness of Jesus, how he is indeed over and above everything, supreme is who he is. And, and when we realize who Jesus is and we take stock of who we are, we recognize how badly we need him. And so the first two chapters lay out this great news, the mystery of Christ, which is hoping, which, which, the mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then the second two chapters of this book, the second half, talk about basically now what? Now what? Now that I have responded to this invitation to be right with the creator of the universe through his son, now then how, not I, how ought we, how ought the community of Jesus' followers now begin to follow after him? And so it's just been a very powerful book on so many fronts. As we wrap it up today, we're going to see Paul give some really clear language about how to not only have lived a rooted life, but how that ought to translate into living a reaching one as well. In your now what idea, and you'll, in your notes and on the screen, a rooted in Jesus life reaches others through a lifestyle of prayer and intentional influence. This is the mechanism that we engage primarily is prayer and intentional influence. So let's dive in your notes. Number one, prayer is essential to reaching your world. Prayer is an essential discipline, behavior, reaction to reaching your world. We're in Colossians chapter 4 today. I forgot to tell you where to turn in your Bible. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. <clears throat> Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I, I, Paul, am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Now, Paul's giving them a reminder. Remember we said that Paul isn't just even writing this book. He's writing this book from prison Colossians is one of what we call the prison epistles. And so he's writing these words and he's telling these people, hey, I am praying that there would be more opportunities to be able to share the greatness of Jesus, this gospel, oh, which by the way is the reason I'm here in the first place. There is a cost to being someone who's going to not just receive the gospel, but want to communicate it to others. And so he's laying out that foundation. It was the first words of this passage that really caught my attention this week. It begins with, devote yourselves. Devote yourselves. It's another imperative verb, so giving a command, devote yourselves. And it caused me, as I was thinking, just to ask the question, what are we currently devoted to? If you were to make up a list today of maybe the top five things you're devoted to, let me even give you a definition. The word devoted could be defined as to direct time, money, effort, energies, resources to a cause, an enterprise, or an activity. So being devoted to something is something that you direct resources to accomplish. You engage it. So if, that, if that's the definition of devoted, simple question, what are you devoted to? 
Think of some of the things that would be on your list. And I think I, I would say the ones in, in my mind that come to mind on your behalf are all good things. You might be devoted to your career, maybe schooling and education or ongoing preparation to get better at what you do. You might be devoted to a sports or a club team. Might spend time, money, energy, effort to get better at that. You might be devoted to the care of your kids and grandkids. Those are great causes, great things to be devoted to. You might be devoted to your fitness. You might be devoted to your hobbies. Many of you, I would say, are devoted to this church, this local group of Jesus followers attempting to live rooted and reaching lives. That, that's, that's a great thing. And, and as I look at that list, not one of the pursuits that I just mentioned are in any way unimportant or wrong. But a simple question, as you were thinking mentally of your maybe five, maybe these are the top things I'm devoted to, would any of us honestly put on our list prayer? It's not so much that we're devoted to all the wrong things. It's maybe that we're devoted to too many good things. Not allowing, not creating margin for there to be a place that allows us to be committed, devoted to the best things. Jim Collins has a great quote, good is always the enemy of great. That was a powerful quote, and I think in this way. Now, by the way, I would never want to infer that none of us at Trinity Church are devoted to prayer. I know numerous people I could just sit here and name off. When I was thinking of this last week as my friend Tara Talvin, and the reason I would mention even Tara to you is every week, on her prayer card, she's noting people, not just praying for general things, but praying for specific people in her relational world. As I get that prayer sheet and we pray through that as a staff, I even know I've become aware now of some of the people that Tara is praying for. And there are numerous other people I can mention similarly that I would say, not just because they write things on a list for other people to pray for, but they themselves are engaging the kingdom of God through prayer and I asked Tara, I saw her last Sunday, and I asked her, I said, Tara, I just so appreciate it. I actually feel like I'm getting to know the people you're praying for as you're inviting me in to pray with them. And I, and I was telling her that she just simply said, Todd, I just simply believe in the power of prayer. Now, I think many of us would say those words, but a simple question is, do our behaviors and actions verify them? Why would Paul keep directing them to pray continuously, steadfastly in prayer? That's another way of saying be devoted in prayer. Because they, the Colossian church, like us, would not do so innately. Paul wouldn't need us, command us, direct us to prayer, to be devoted to prayer, if that was something that we naturally did. Just, oh yeah, I should do that. We don't naturally devote time and energy and resources to prayer because we don't actually believe it's worth the effort. We don't see the value. And even when a passage like this directs us, we often remain unchanged in our behavior because even when we're commanded to be prayerful in our approach to life, we're not really sure why we're praying beyond the fact that God says so. That's a little harsh for 10, 12 in the morning. I get it. But it's the truth. In your notes, for the majority of us, prayer is supplemental, not fundamental to our lives. For the majority of us, prayer is supplemental, not fundamental to our lives. Now, I want you to hear this. This is not a guilt trip. I've told you numerous times, guilt trips don't work. 
I learned that growing up, living in a home where guilt was made an effort, and all I would do is just feel bad for about an hour. And then I go back to doing what I was doing before. Guilt is not a motivator. Guilt is not a way that transformation happens. So there's no way a guilt trip. It's simply looking in the mirror and asking some hard questions. Why am I? Why are we not devoted to prayer? And I think it's because we misunderstand its purpose and power. I love this quote. It's in your notes and on the screen. When you work, you work. But when you pray, God works. We just forget The creator of the universe is someone that we have a lifeline to, someone we get to talk to, and his resources are those that we get to ask for. We simply keep doing a lot of our own working, but we don't call upon the one who works far beyond anything we could accomplish. So I want to give you just a few ideas today on prayer. First off, prayer is a behavior that constantly reminds us of our dependence upon God. Prayer is a behavior that constantly reminds us of our dependence upon God. And here's the thing. One of the biggest reasons I find, especially among men, that we don't pray is we don't like to be reminded of our dependence. We think of ourselves as relatively independent, self-made. That is contrary to the gospel. But the reality is this. If we understand prayer, if you could simply define it, prayer. I went to seminary to find this out. Prayer means talking to God. You're welcome, okay? <laughs> Saved you a lot of money right there. I had a whole class devoted to prayer, and I loved it. Our professor said, you know, we can get all kinds of textbooky on this, but when you break it down, it's people communicating to God. And so it's not just any people. Think of it this way. If God is, what we see all throughout Scripture is our Heavenly Father, and you, through Jesus, have become his child, then understand prayer for what it is. Prayer is you as a child of God in, in joining, talking to, communicating to, and treating of your father. Now, it's odd to me, and if, if this is you, please forgive me, but I've been around so many people that when they go to pray, they become a different persona. In normal conversation, I've never heard them speak in Elizabethan English. <laughs> but all of a sudden, thou, Lordest, doest thyest bidding. I mean, right out of the King James, and I'm just confused, like, what is happening? Because here's the honest truth. If prayer really is communication from you as a child to God, your Father, I'll just tell you, in my years of parenting, my kids have never got their act together first to come talk to me. (laughs) Thou Father, please regard us this. It's a dad! This is so awesome. Dad, please. I'm in a bad way. That, that's it. That's the nature of prayer. And prayer keeps reminding us, driving us back to the reality of how much we need God. That's a good thing. Secondly, another reality about prayer, as we're mindful today. Prayer somehow matters in the course of events unfolding. I worded this word in your notes. I even used the word I, so if that's not true of you, forgive me. But for me, I'm not sure that we can confidently exactly say how. Prayer somehow matters in the course of events unfolding, but I'm not sure that we can confidently say exactly how. Here's what I mean by that. When you look at Scripture, I'm not talking about my experiences or your experiences. When you look at Scripture, When you look at the way that people prayed, what you will see sometimes is that people are calling upon the creator of the universe to act, and he does. 
He does something consistent with what they're asking for. Then other times in scripture, you see people ask. The creator of the universe, God would you. By the way, one of those was his very son in a garden called Gethsemane. And he says no. So is it somehow the nature of the person asking that gets favor with God to do what he or she wants? No. All over scripture, no. But what we do know is this. A, like in this passage today, we are commanded to pray. How the outcome unravels, how much my prayer actually changes what would happen. What would happen if I didn't pray today and what would happen then? What we get lost in is somehow thinking that prayer is all about activating some change. When what we forget is prayer is about obedience and faith. Maybe the fact that I don't know how it changes things is the best expression of obedience and faith. I can say, God, I am asking for this. And me and maybe thousands of others asking for the same thing. We don't know how exactly it moves your hand but out of obedience and faith, we keep asking. Finally, number three in this section, the prayers of scripture were not safe, you're gonna do whatever you're gonna do anyway types of prayers, but those asked in bold humility. But those asked in bold humility. Those are two words you don't usually see put together, bold humility, but I think they're very fitting. This is how it used to be for me, and I'm just going to share a little bit out of my experience now. I've tried to keep it very much what is, what's going on in Scripture. But this is what would happen. People, and I, being in ministry 25 years, I have had so many wonderful and even heartbreaking opportunities to pray with people about issues in their lives. And as people would come to me and they would ask for prayer for X, this used to be how my prayers all began. God, if it be your will, dot, 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 dot. And, and I would say that those were safe prayers that began maybe with that sense of humility. God, I don't, know, I don't know anything. I don't know what should happen best. I'm trusting that to you. But here's what I will say. As I began to read the prayers of Scripture, as I began to read the prayers in, Bi- in the Bible, yes, there were times when it says, God, we want what you want. God, your will. But that's always at the end. It started with, God, would you please From this vantage point, from all that I can see today, this makes the most sense. So I'm gonna ask you as your son, I'm gonna ask you for this, but God, I know what you're gonna do is ultimately all best for all of us. That is a bold humility. And so if you ask me to pray with you, my prayer now will usually start, God, would you please? And from our vantage point, that's the thing that makes the most sense but it doesn't mean I can see it clearly. And it doesn't mean that I know what is ultimately for our best and for God's glory. So yes, God, would your will be what reigns? I believe those kinds of prayers begin to capture our heart. They begin to put us in this understanding. And if we always undergird our understanding of God, of this phrase that we see all throughout the scripture, that he is good and that his love endures forever. We're constantly mindful of who we're talking to. Back to the text. Notice the focus of Paul's directive for their prayers and that for him. That God may open a door for our message. 
so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Paul recognized the essential role that prayer plays in people responding to the gospel. What did he write to the Ephesians in chapter two? People are spiritually dead on arrival. They cannot respond to the stimuli of God if it, not, if it were not for the, the stimulation, the awakening, the quickening of the Holy Spirit in their lives. All the greatest words of the gospel won't matter if God is not doing a work waking someone up to their need. Paul realized that. He didn't pray for eloquent speeches or wonderful PowerPoint presentations. He prayed that God would go ahead of him, be on the move, create a pathway for the gospel both to be brought and received. I want to say I'm grateful that we have tried to make in front of you consistently the way to remember how to keep praying for the people in your world. It was actually at the very beginning of this series that we mentioned these prayer cards. If you remember how Colossians 1 begins, it begins with Paul giving this amazing, writing down, this is how I pray for you. Powerful words about what God was doing among them, around the world, and through Jesus in their community. And we brought these out and we reminded ourselves, this card, this simple little card, it's not magic. But what it is is a great reminder. It's this great way to have in front of you consistently, these are the people in my world. Some of them love Jesus, some of them don't yet. But I'm gonna consistently be praying for the people that God has supernaturally, strategically placed me among. Why? Because this passage in Colossians 4 tells me to. To be devoted to prayer is to be praying for the work that God is doing in people's lives. People that I get to rub shoulders with, do life with. And I gotta believe that this is an integral part to how God is going to work in the lives of people that you're doing life with is your consistent prayer for what's going on with them. How did Paul say it? Be watchful, pay attention, and be thankful. And pray for the people in your world. Devote yourself to prayer as an essential aspect of your relationship with God and to live out his mission for your life. In your notes today, number two, strategic graciousness is to be your approach as an intentional influencer. Strategic graciousness is to be your approach as an intentional influencer. These are also two words you don't see every day right next to each other. But I think they make sense from what we look at today. Colossians 4 verse 5. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, subsequent, Paul has already begun. Be devoted in prayer. Pray for the people in your world. Pray for me that God would create opportunities, pathways for the gospel to reach people. But now he gives them another step. It begins with prayer, but it doesn't end there. Begin with prayer, but then what follows it? Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders would literally be keep on walking in wisdom towards those outside. That's a great phrase. Another imperative, present, active verb. Keep on doing it. The term outsiders, I want to clarify from the beginning today, it isn't meant to be a term that's negative or diminutive, but a genuine statement regarding the spiritual status of those who are not yet in the family of God. They are currently outside of that community. But watch this, often what happens with different relationships in our lives, if somebody isn't in, if they're out, they're treated poorly. What does Paul say? Just the opposite. 
If somebody's outside of your family, outside of your church body, instead, walk with wisdom. Instead, be urgent in the way you approach them. Instead, be gracious always. Instead, be someone whose words are are seasoned with salt. Paul says just the opposite. Be someone who absolutely these people want to be around and feel loved. I loved the phrase in our song today. Lord, lead me. Lead me into your love to love those in my life, to love those that I do life with. That's what it's about. The phrase, making the most of every opportunity, might also be understood literally as buying back or redeeming the time. Make the best use of this time. It carries with it a sense of urgency. I was thinking about you, our high school students here this morning. Maybe a good way to translate that is, let's get this bread. Kendi, that didn't work. We tried. (laughs) Kendi was coaching me. She said, Dad... It's going to be so good. It didn't. Okay, good. (laughs) For the rest of us who don't look at memes very much, I didn't know what it meant either, so that's okay. Here's what we're talking about. It's a unique sense of paying close attention to the instances going on in people's lives. People who haven't yet been awakened to the gospel, but it's paying clear attention. I am watching. I am paying attention. I'm dialed in. I I know what's going on in your life, and it matters to me. It it changes my prayers. It changes the way I respond to you. It gives me unique sensitivity. It affords you an opportunity to share the one thing you know they need the most. Remember what we said earlier. That's exactly how he coached them to pray, watchfully. Pay attention. This same phrase, making the most of every opportunity, it's used a few times in the New Testament, but it's most closely a parallel to Ephesians 5. Look at that, Ephesians 5.15. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Watch, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Notice that Paul doesn't stop there. Paul doesn't just give a sense of urgency and say, be about this. He actually tells them how. How to be about this. How to respond to the people in their world. He says it's a posture of grace and flavor. That's that's the way that you ought to present yourself when answering the questions of people who are outside. This phrase, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, is very significant, and I really believe you can boil it down to one word winsomeness, winsomeness, having this sense of of connection, of attraction. And I go back to even the song we sing today, that winsomeness comes from a genuine love. Sitting at a high school football game Friday night, Rev Redlands game, big smudge pot game. I won't tell you whose side I sat on, but it was the winning team, you know, that whole thing. (laughs) So... So right next to the Rev student section, oh, by the way, Rev one. So, um, but I'm sitting right next to the student section and they're going nuts the whole time and I'm really questioning my wife why she picked these seats, but that was great. And, and they're going nuts, but I gotta tell you, as people were streaming, like we sat on this outside edge, so students were going back and forth the whole game. And I remember seeing people walk back and forth and from an appearance, never met them, don't know them, there would be people that I would tend to be judgmental towards. Something about the way they looked, something about the way they dressed, something, just the way they were acting, whatever it may be. It was really cool preparing for this week, 
just the overwhelming thought that kept coming to my mind every time I'd see another student or group walk up that I would just genuine, generally have some sort of bad attitude towards. Every time they kept walking up, I just thought, love them. Love them. I interacted with one or two just for a chance occurrence. They bumped into me or something, but nothing beyond a mental change in my head. You wouldn't have known any action that came, but I want to say it's where it begins. Your conversation will not be seasoned with salt. You will not be always gracious if it doesn't spring from a place that says, God, you love and value every human being on the planet. Help me to as well. Help me to get in line with your love as well. I think about this phrase, seasoned with salt, and it means exactly what you think it means. Think of a type of food that you go, you know, like for me, um, when I think of scrambled eggs or popcorn, I can't begin to think of eating those apart from salt, right? And I know, I mean, either salt's going to kill you or it's the best thing that ever happened, For me, uh, I like to eat food, and so I like to season my stuff with salt. But I think of those two foods, and I would go, scrambled eggs or popcorn without salt? Why bother? What what are you doing? That makes no sense to me. It only tastes, has any value of taste if you're going to add some salt to that. So this is the idea. Let it be something that adds flavor. Needed, essential flavor. I would say the timing of our passage today is just so, to me, God-ordained. We have this great privilege, Steve mentioned earlier today, of having Doug Pollock. Later on this next month, November the 18th, Doug is going to be here to speak in the morning services. He's the author of the book, God Space. He's later on that same day going to provide this great um, just workshop. And, and here's what I want you to understand. I want you to see why we're doing this. Because Doug is going to help us with this part of Colossians 4, the how. Some of us have this great understanding, either because by nature or by supernaturally, God has gifted you to be an evangelist, or you just have this clarion call, you're to be about the idea that people need the gospel and you want to share it. So out of either of those things, you have the right directive, but often we don't have a good technique. And this, uh, this workshop is not all about say this when they say that. It's not that. It's how to develop a posture that is full of grace. A posture that speaks in words that are seasoned with salt. It's how to ask, like Stephen said, how to ask good questions, how to listen well. We're so quick to want to get our information out there. Are we listening? Doug's going to share a little bit of his story, and I won't be stealing it by telling you this part. He works with a group called Athletes in Action. Many of us know of them. They use competitive sports as a means to bring the gospel to people all over the world. And Doug would go onto college campuses to speak with athletes here at the state, um, in the States as well. And he just talked about when he'd be walking down dorm rooms, he could see athletes like rats jumping off a ship. Any way they could get out of his direction because he was so gnarly, he was so challenging, he was so in your face, just plowed people over, they wanted nothing to do with him. So Doug was the one who realized this is not working. And I love that. I actually want to hear what Doug says. I've read his book. I am so excited about him communicating with us because I want to hear from a guy who said, I tried this, it was completely not only ineffective, but not what scripture says. And then I understood Colossians 4 and I wanted to try this. And this is what I've been doing ever since. Now, here's what I know. 
Many of you will be here that morning anyway. But for those who will go to the workshop, it's going to be the same group of people. The same group of people who have the spiritual gift of evangelism. They're doing an amazing job. God's using them in really powerful ways. And the rest of us just go, but Todd, I don't have that gift. I'm not good at this. Can I tell you something? That's why we're doing it. For those of us who aren't good at this, and I included myself, I am not gifted primarily in evangelism. This is hard for me. This doesn't come natural. And it's birthed out of both a sense of urgency, just the words we read a minute ago, but also a sense of God, I want to do the right things the right ways. I want to have conversations that are full of grace, seasoned with salt. So you and I can both get better equipped because we love the people that God has supernaturally, strategically placed us among in our relational world. We want to get better at listening and we want to get better at loving. And that's why we're having Doug Pollock out. I'm excited for him to come. Now, what he's going to do is he's help you, going to help you avoid awkward wooden segues and help you keep from going right into debate mode with people who are unconvinced about who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for them. And I want to, I want to do a quick rabbit trail. I want to talk about that word unconvinced. This summer, up at family camp at Forest Home, I had a great conversation with a camper, and he and I were talking. He says, Todd, let me try this out on you. My pastor, he started using this word unconvinced to describe those who haven't yet put their faith in Jesus. What do you think about that? I said, that is a great word. Because if you stop and think about it, somebody who is convinced doesn't just have like a mental assent to something, they live accordingly. If I'm convinced that something is true, I'm actually going to do something about it. This is a beautiful word. And it made me think of some of the words that we're all guilty of. This is not like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you said this about something. We all use these words. But I don't think the words we use for what this passage identifies are people who are outside the family of God. I don't think they're often helpful. I don't think they're often accurate. I think they're often diminutive and negative. Let me give you a few examples. The word non-Christian. And you're like, hey, Todd, that's really simple. What's the problem? Well, think of it this way. I think it communicates that someone is currently not a Christian and also that they will never become one. Here's what I mean by that. Non-fat milk doesn't become fatty milk with a little bit of time. It's a label. It's what it is. It's what it's always going to be. I don't think that word's super helpful. The word unbeliever. I don't think the word unbeliever makes any sense anymore because we've divorced belief from action. What I mean by that is many people in your relational world have a cognitive belief of a big guy in the sky. They, quote, believe in God. And here's what James chapter 2 says, so do the demons. The demons have a stronger belief than any person that you do life with. They know the reality of God, but they choose not to live accordingly. So just believing in the fact that there's a deity has never been the point of salvation. That word I don't think is helpful. The word pagan. The word pagan is just a rude insider word. I just want to be honest with you. And I've, I've been guilty of it too, so please don't hear me pointing fingers. I've been guilty of using the same term. It's not helpful. The word pagan does occur in the Bible. And it occurs in the Bible because Paul was talking to a group of people who actually worshipped pagan deities. They were, by definition, pagans. But when you call your next door neighbor a pagan, that's not true of him or her, and it's not helpful. It's condescending. I love this word unconvinced. They are yet unconvinced of who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And what a great opportunity for you to get to be a small part 
of God helping convince them of who he is. All right, off the rabbit trail. One final thing. Of all these strategies, know this. Know that it's, how, it's giving you the tools to know how to answer everyone. I want you to catch the intentionality of the wording. It's not a technique so that you might know how to get your point across. How you might be able to debate better because you're convinced of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Look in your notes. Are you answering questions people around you aren't asking? I just would ask the question, where do you see that in scripture? I'm not seeing it here in Colossians 4 for sure. Look at the the, um, parallel text that we often look at and rightfully so. And by the way, Paul gave them the tools. He said, why are people around you going to begin asking? Because you're watching and thankfully praying for them. And secondly, because you're living in a winsome way towards them, those two things begin to bring out questions in people. 1 Peter 3.15, a passage we know well, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Recognize that Jesus is over everything. Always be prepared to give what? An answer. Not a debate, not a, a thesis. To give an answer, someone's asking the question. To everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have, But do this with what? Gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Finally today, number three, reaching your world was meant to be a team effort. Reaching your world was always meant to be a team effort. This is the end of the letter, and I will tell you that often someone who's read books like these letters, like Colossians, I will get to the end and get really surfacey all of a sudden. Like, I don't know Tychicus, and why do I care? But I want to show you something today. I want you to see the value of these names and what they represent. Let me read it from beginning in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all the news <coughs> excuse me, about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for these at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Remember we said as we started this series, that was like a tri-community, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. Our dear friend Luke the doctor and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it's also read to the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains and grace be with you. I want you to see the importance of these final words and of these names that are put out there so you can see that Paul surrounded himself with a team. He was not a lone ranger. Always, everywhere we see him throughout the book of Acts and the narratives and in these letters, he's always with a team, either mentoring other people or people who are his companions. And I want you to see that, that that's how we should think. God hasn't called you singularly to anything. He's called us as a community into something. And I want you, as you look at these different personalities, maybe 
look at them and with a sense, they're all admirable, look at them with a sense of, God, how could you use me as a teammate to someone else at Trinity Church through one of these ways? First off, here's a picture of these guys. These are the eight that, um, that Paul was talking about. Actually, I just went on the internet and found a picture of eight guys. So if you know one of these guys, that'd be really weird. Uh, but they're eight random guys, and I just all gave them a name, you know, to go from there. So uh, of the eight, six of them are noted specifically, Luke and Demas at the end are just mentioned. But I want you to see, first off, these are the first two who actually brought the letter. Tychicus was mentioned. He's the messenger who brought it, and he's described as a dear brother, a faithful minister. Well, he doesn't look like Tychicus to you? Like you're giving me attitude because he doesn't look like you know what he looks like. He's as good a version of Tychicus as you have, let me tell you. But described as a dear brother, faithful minister, fellow servant. Here's what I want you to think about Tychicus. I want you to think of the gravity of this. Paul most likely in prison in Rome. He is bringing, Tychicus is bringing a letter Paul wrote to the Colossian Christians. He also probably had a letter to the Laodiceans like we just read as well. Can I have you think about something for a moment? I don't know if Tychicus understood the weight of what he was doing. He was carrying the very word of God. In your Bible, those words are because Tychicus got these words, this letter from Rome to Colossae. This is even powerful to stop and think about the way that God would use someone merely as an agent, merely as a, a messenger in the power of what you reap from it today. Onesimus is the other one mentioned. Onesimus is a powerful character in the church at Colossae because Onesimus was the former slave of Philemon. When you read the book of Philemon, you only know it as Philemon. Philemon and Onesimus were in Colossae. Onesimus was a slave of Philemon's. He ran away. And somewhere along the route, Maybe in Rome, maybe somewhere else. He came across Paul as this runaway slave. Runaway slaves were put to death. There was no good thing that was going to happen next for them. Comes across the gospel, responds to it, becomes discipled by Paul. Paul understands where he's from, understands Philemon is a part of the church at Colossae, and he, along with Tychicus, bring this letter to this local church. I just want you to, for a moment, think about that reunion. I want you to think about this group of Jesus followers who are assembled in this place. Philemon is among them. And notice, that, imagine walking through the door is a guy, Tychicus, you don't even know, but you definitely know the other guy. Stolen property. And if you read the book of Philemon, you're going to see, in short, Paul basically say this, what was formerly merely property to you, I'm encouraging now, receive as a brother. What was it like when their eyes met that day? To me, that's the power of the transformation of the gospel and how it changes the way we see the world. Other people stayed back at Rome. They were companions with Paul. Aristarchus, a companion who'd been through so much with Paul, a riot in Ephesus, they were shipwrecked, and now they were fellow prisoners. If you notice that, he's in jail with Paul. It's not like he's coming by to visit. He's right there. Mark powerful. Mark was the reason Paul and Barnabas split back in Acts 15. Barnabas was uh, a cousin to Mark. Mark had been with them on the previous trip. Mark had deserted them. And so now when they're starting out to their next venture, Barnabas says, I want to bring Mark. Paul says he's a loser. 
He failed us last time. We're not bringing him. So much to the point of a schism, they went separate ways. This is what I want you to see the power of. Paul says, this guy's a faithful guy. Talk about redemption. Talk about there being a way to be reconciled. He was the reason they split. Now Paul says, this is a guy who's been rightfully restored, not just to the body of Christ, but even to serve. That's a great, great narrative. Justice, the only time his name is found in the Bible, and he's noted for one who alleviated pain for Paul. You think about that being your moniker? What would people know you for? I'm someone who alleviated pain. It's pretty cool. Epaphras, he's the one who actually was of Colossae. He's the one that had brought the gospel in the first place. And look what Paul describes him as. He's wrestling in prayer. He's doing exactly what Paul said at the beginning of Ephesians 4. He's doing that for them. He's praying for you. You look at these other eight guys, Luke and Demas are just noted, but the bottom line is this. Look in your notes. Why would you think that you're intended to reach your world all alone if even Paul didn't? Why would you think that this is somehow just all about you and your little set of relational world people? Why would you not think of this group of people, this larger body who would say, how can I partner with you? How can I be praying for the people in your world? When you bring them close to me, how can I befriend them? How can I show them the love of Jesus? Let's do this together. This has been a powerful study for us. Jesus at the center of all of it. And as a result, how do we live related to Jesus being supreme? Let's pray. Father God, we look at this passage today in Colossians and there's much, much going on some very clear directives related to being a people who maybe we're not anywhere close to that today, but would we be willing to move beyond guilt to actual true change, to take a step towards, a next step towards being someone who's devoted to prayer? Maybe it's just even picking up one of the prayer cards on our way out today, but something, God, that demonstrates movement towards being a person who's devoted to prayer. God, when it comes to being a person of intentional influence, thank you so much, not only that your word gives us the directive, but even tells us how. Would we be a people, God, where our conversations are full of grace? Our conversations, God, are those that are seasoned with salt, that we would redeem the time. We'd have a sense of urgency about the way we pray, the way we live. Would there be a winsomeness in our life that begs the question, and would people in our worlds want to know? Father, I thank you for the team even gathered in this room right now. I thank you for the way that we could stop and identify people as being those like part of Paul's team. Part of those that had worked alongside of him for the good of your kingdom. God, thank you. Thank you for the workers. Thank you for the laborers who are here that are saying, Jesus your kingdom matters most. I want to live according to it. You might be here today and you would say, Todd, I've never responded to the gospel and I have great news for you, you can. A, admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. B, believe. Believe that what Jesus did at the cross in the empty tomb, Jesus paid something. He, he enabled you to be rightly reconciled to the creator of the universe. C is choose. Choose to put your weight, your 
your faith in what Jesus has done on your behalf, recognizing your forgiveness and moving forward saying, Jesus, I want to walk in your footsteps. You can make that decision right here and right now, and I pray you would. Father, we love you. Thank you for your immense love over us. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.